I would invite you all now to turn to the book of Esther, chapter 2. We're going to look this evening at the second chapter of Esther. Previously seen the, the general parameters of the story, and we looked last week at an unusual chapter in the Bible in which we were given a window into the secular pagan world where we see what's going on at the court of the Persian king. And really, um, at that time, the Lord and his people are not really at the forefront. And now this evening, that changes a bit as we get to see God's people, specifically Esther and Mordecai, as they relate to the world and exist in the world. And at times act of the world. So if you'd please give attention to the reading of God's word, Esther, chapter 2. Hear now the very word of God. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, and what he had decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young women, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem along, among, among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel, in the custody of Hegai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace, and put in the custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being twelve months under the regulation for women, since there was a regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, and six with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went in to the king this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaazga, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and was summoned by name. Then, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, 
who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the, house, the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, both men were hanged, on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this reading and preaching of your word. We ask, O Lord, that you would teach us from it, that we might live lives that are changed by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Any of you who have spent any time in a school, or in a job, or in a club, or on a sports team, know this. You know that it can be a lot of work. You know it can cause a lot of anxiety. What am I talking about? It's the desire and the danger that goes along with it to fit in. To wear the right clothes that everybody else has. To have the right tastes that everyone else has. To have read the right books that everyone else has. There is a desire that we seek not to stick out like a sore thumb. We desire to blend in just enough to be accepted and in some ways loved. That can happen... Not only in things like clothing we wear in school, but it can happen also, sadly, in spiritual matters as well. This chapter in Esther, Esther chapter 2, describes for us some of the difficulties that come from fitting in with a society that is not a godly society. And so what I would like us to look at briefly, seeing that our time is short, is three things. First, I would like us to look at the danger of fitting in. The danger of fitting in. Secondly, I'd like us to look at the consequence of disobedience. That can be disobedience that comes from trying to fit in, or it can precede it. The danger of fitting in, and the consequence of disobedience. And then, lest we be left with no hope, I would like us to look at the distinctive hand of God in the midst of these difficulties. The danger of fitting in, 
the consequences of disobedience and the distinctive hand of God, specifically here in the lives of Esther and Mordecai. Well, let's look first then at the danger of fitting in. The first thing that this chapter begins to describe for us is life in Persia. We've seen some of it as we were in the king's palace and we noticed his wonderful curtains and his expensive couches and his great feasts. We're getting a bit of a picture of what it is like to live in the Persian Empire. This gives us yet more of a picture. We see life in Persia through the eyes of those who are searching for a new queen. Now, I don't want you to just see this as one incident of something that's happening in a story. I want you to think about this as how it describes or indicates the culture that they live in. And then think about how that relates to us. Because you see, they're going out to choose a better queen. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 19, it is said that they are to find someone who is better than Vashti. So what exactly does better mean in Persia? What is the definition of better? Well, we're told in the decree that goes out. What is better is young, unmarried, and beautiful. That is better than the queen. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute in a society. What it caused all of the difficulty that has got everyone up in arms and the Persian Postal Service going to every little town with this decree, what had caused all the problems? Was it that the queen forgot to put on her lipstick and didn't look as pretty? No. It was that the queen had disobeyed the king. Now, regardless of whether we, again, we don't know whether that command was lawful or not, or the disobedience was modest or not, one thing we do know is that it wasn't a young issue, it wasn't an unmarried issue, and it wasn't a pretty issue. It was a character issue. And so now here, in this society, lives, remember, Esther and Mordecai, and what does this society value above all? What is better? It's everything that's superficial. It's everything that can be changed. It's everything that can be morphed. You see, it's not just that they value things of less value. They value things that the people of God can put on as a veneer. Right? You see, it would be one thing if they valued fidelity for Persia's gods and hatred of the Lord God. That would be a bit more difficult to pretend or to go along with. But if you could, you could put a layer of young, a layer of unmarried, a layer of beauty on top of godliness, couldn't you? You could certainly be young and godly. You could certainly be unmarried and godly. And you can certainly be beautiful and godly. So that represents a temptation. It also tells us that what they value here is not only superficial... It's impersonal. Do not kid yourself. What the king wants is a living doll. He wants a Barbie. I mean, if you look at the whole way of the text in which we've looked at, he has a harem, and it is designed so that he only sees these women once. Maybe twice if he asks for them by name. 
It's not designed to build up any kind of a personal relationship, to engender any kind of love, as the word is used here for Esther. It is completely superficial. Now, as we step back from the text, and we say to ourselves, Xerxes, bad. Pagans, bad. Godlessness, bad. How can we then work into our own lives the pursuit of superficiality, of youngness, of beauty, as an end and substantive end in itself? I'm not saying you should try and ladies go home and be as unbeautiful as possible. Please don't. (laughs) But, is that the sum of your substance? You see, our society is teaching, especially young women, that their value is in how pretty they are. And it is teaching young men that the value of women is in how pretty they are. And sadly, we're getting to the point where we have equal opportunity paganism because now the value in men now is not even necessarily thrift or hard work or other more old line values, but rather it's prettiness. We have a whole new word, metrosexual, which means prettified man who knows which shirts go with which slacks and which shoes for every occasion. This is superficiality. At its best. There's also, this was a standard life in Persia. I mean, think about this. The decree goes out, and it doesn't matter where you are, you are eligible to be dragged off to the harem. Now, before you think that would be horrible, think of the average Persian who might be living in a backwater town, who might be scraping together a life, and you say, young lady, how would you like to come off and never work again, and you can sit around and get, eat whatever you need to eat, and be provided for, and live in the lap of luxury? Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Oh, but you might say, wait a minute. But they are not free to leave the harem. And there are restraints and difficulties that go with that. Now let me ask you this. My guess is that none of you will have the opportunity to either accept or refuse a harem job. But, might you not be tempted to work at a job that you hate every minute of it, simply because it provides a good source of comfort and security and living? How is that any different In terms of a choice. Are you seeking meaning in your work? Are you seeking meaning in what you do? Or are you just seeking ease, luxury, security, comfort? Are you seeking to make a difference in others' lives? Or are you just going through the motions? This is very similar. Well, this was the core of the existence that would have been known to both Mordecai and Esther. They would have been in exile for more than a hundred years. Not them personally. Remember, Esther is young. But the people of Israel. They would have known no other life. It's actually, the Bible is interesting the way it words things. If you look with me at verse 6. The Bible wants us to be very clear that Mordecai is in exile in a foreign land. It says that he is the son of these people who had been carried away, who had been put into exile from Jerusalem among the captives or among the exiles who were carried away 
with Jeconiah the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon had carried away. So the definition of Mordecai is an exile who had been exiled along with the other exiles during the exile. Did you get the picture? Bible's piling that on top of you. It wants you to see that that is his existence. And yet he is a man who lives in two kingdoms as once. He is a citizen of two kingdoms. At home he is Mordecai the Jew. At work he is Mordecai the keeper of the gate. And he presumably does as much as he can, like his advice to Esther, to not wear his badge as the people of God on his shoulder. He's not putting on a Star of David. He doesn't have a little pin that says, Yahweh loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He's trying to fit in. This is not that different from Christians today, is it? We try awful hard to fit in. So much so that for many people who are outside of America, they don't think about Christians. They think about Americans. They think that Christianity and Americanism is basically the same thing. And we see this in survey after survey after survey, where divorce rates are the same between so-called evangelicals and the world. Where theft is high among so-called Bible-believing evangelicals. Where adultery is high among so-called Bible-believing evangelicals. This is life in Persia. Well, it's not just life in Persia, though. Esther also tries to thrive in Persia. She gives no resistance to the royal cattle call. She is not whisked off somewhere else to be saved from being the wife of a pagan king. Now, you need to understand that this was so against the laws of Deuteronomy that commentators for centuries have tried to find ways to describe how either she wasn't really married or she wasn't at fault or there was something else going on because it was about the worst thing that you could do to marry a pagan. At this very same time, as a matter of fact, within a few years, Ezra is making sure that those who have intermarried are cast out of the priesthood and are killed for intermarrying. He took that very seriously. And what we might expect here is for Esther to be involved, but for there to be some kind of Hollywood-esque escape route in which love is upheld. Or some of you may remember the old play Fiddler on the Roof in which the young daughter is to be married off to an older man, and there's this elaborate plot to make sure that she can marry her one true love. But you see, this isn't Hollywood. It's Persia. This is the way the empire works. Esther is swept off into the king's harem. But she's learned not only how to survive, she has learned how to thrive. She knows that the empire runs on superficialities. We've already seen this. And she excels at this. You see, when they go out to find a young lady, they look specifically for one who is lovely to look at, or beautiful. If you look here at verse 3, they are to find beautiful young virgins. That is, those who are lovely to look at. And then if you look down at verse 7, we see that Esther is not only lovely to look at, but she also has a beautiful figure. She is able to excel at this level of superficialities. 
And I think it's fair to say that she does use that to her advantage. I'm not saying in an immoral way, but she knows that if others value, excuse me, superficiality, she can be superficial. Because there's an interesting idiom here used in verse 9. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. Now, if you go back through the Bible and you look at Joseph, or you look at um, other patriarchs, or you look at Daniel, you'll find a slightly different phrase. It says that they found favor in his sight. This idiom is really only used here. It's It's meant to catch our attention. It's an active verb. She won his favor. She did something in order to make him like her more than the other women. She didn't just stand by and have the halo effect. Ooh, I like her. No, she went out of her way perhaps to use pleasant speech. Perhaps to be deferent. Especially in this society, she would probably be known as a very compliant woman. She worked very hard at this. So the question then comes to you and to me, what scale of values do we have? God's or our society's? Who are we seeking to please? What skills are we seeking to hone? Those that are valued by society? A ruthless killer instinct? Superficial beauty? Or depth of character? Commitment? Loyalty? This is something that we know is a difficulty of trying to fit in. Well, then we see the consequences of disobedience. If I can put it to you this way, no one is going to write a hymn, Dare to be an Esther. She is no Daniel, at least at this point. She, unlike Daniel, partakes of the cosmetics and the food. This was standard procedure. For those of you that don't realize this, it is really a, an oddity of our society that rail-thin women are considered beautiful. In the old days, it was, it was very obvious. If you were thin, it was because you were poor and couldn't afford for food. If you were heavy, whether a man or a woman, it was a sign of richness, like rich food. It was a sign that you had luxury and wealth and power. And so food is being here provided to Esther, just like food had been provided to Daniel. But unlike Daniel... Esther doesn't see any problem with it. As a matter of fact, she is essentially becoming the king's plaything. She is the, if we can put it this way, she is the anti-Vashti. She's certainly not going to upset the king. Certainly not over food or over some silly law from Leviticus or Deuteronomy. She is going to be as compliant as possible. And if we look at verse 15, we see that when her turn came, she had been taken as her own daughter. She went to go into the king and asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Again, this implies an effort on her part. And this effort gets her the crown. Now, the interesting thing is that this really is just a part of a history of disobedience in the situation. It tells us that the consequences of sin are far-reaching. Why are they in Susa? Well, it's because Judah was disobedient and cast out into exile. Why is she here now? Well, it's because she and Mordecai were disobedient and didn't go back to the promised land 
when Cyrus said they could. You see, this is a disobedience that has been building up for hundreds of years. And disobedience has consequences. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but if you flout the laws of God, you will pay for it. Because the law of God is not only holy, it is good. It's good for us. And so for all of the physical and worldly advantages that Esther has, she is in a very spiritually dangerous place. She has pressure on her, but the pressure is very subtle. She's not told to deny her faith, but just simply to go under the radar. And this pressure comes from her own family, from fellow believers. Do you feel that kind of pressure at home? At work, at school, the pressure to just lay low a little bit, to not stick out. When someone makes a crude joke, to not say anything. When someone uses the Lord's name in vain, to just kind of turn your head. You see, this is a spiritually dangerous place to be in, especially today in America. This is the kind of disobedience that sets up this Difficulty for Esther. So we've seen the danger of trying to fit in and the the consequences of disobedience. But the good news for us is we also see the distinctive hand of God. We see that God is still with his people even in their disobedience. What do I mean by that? I mean, in general, we are called as children to obey our parents and as adults to obey those who are put in authority over us. But there are times when we must stand up against them in order to do what is right. And when we do, oftentimes there are consequences to that. We may not get invited to the party we wanted to. We may not get the promotion that we wanted. We may not have the security that we want. And when we do, we must understand that is a part of the Christian life. You've heard the cliche, there's no crying in baseball. There's no whining in Christianity. There's no whining about my rights that I didn't get. And I can't believe, because I'm a Christian, they passed me over for that promotion. It's called counting the cost. It's called standing up for what's right. Not being superficial. Doing what is right, regardless of how comfortable it makes us. And the interesting thing here we see with Esther and with Mordecai, I've sort of painted a a sour picture of them this evening, but this isn't the rest of the story. We're going to see that there is hope for us when we make bad decisions. You know, when we consciously shut out the voice of God and marry an unbeliever. Or when we consciously take a job that we know we shouldn't. But we just can't resist that race. Or when we avoid dealing with a person, even though we know we should, but we just don't want to deal with that now. You see, God does not write us off and throw us in the trash heap and say, you know what, I gave you a shot, you didn't obey, get out of my life. People can do that. But not God. You see, there's hope for us because even those of us that make bad decisions who are disobedient are not written out of the story of God. This chapter 2 highlights all of the bad decisions of Esther. She is not written out of the story of God. As a matter of fact, she is highlighted 
in the story of God. This gives us great hope as we go forward. Finally, we need to think about Esther's story and the hand of God in terms of her life and getting beauty treatments and what she would get in order to stand before the king. Just ask you this question. You all know that Hollywood starlets and bodybuilders and scholars, in order to attain what they want to attain, expend incredible amounts of energy and money and time to get the right look or the right muscles or published in the right paper. The question is, do we have the same fervor for the beauty treatments that God gives us to mold us into the image of Christ? Sometimes they're painful. Sometimes they're time-consuming. Sometimes they're difficult. But do we seize upon them? You see, the sovereignty of God is easy to confess in the abstract. But when God meets us at a place in which He takes us from where we want to go and where we want to be, that is where sovereignty hits the pavement. It's all good for God to be sovereign when that's a big hand helping me along my way. But when God wants me to go in a different direction, am I comfortable with that? Do I seize upon that? Do I see that He has my growth and my good in that? Well, this is the story so far of Esther. She is a woman who has made mistakes in a bad situation, in a bad time, because she's trying to fit in and being disobedient. But we're now starting to see the hand of God behind her, blessing her making her useful in his kingdom. May God do so, too, for you and for me.